following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 11, if you would. We're going to look at something incredibly practical today. It has to do with your, as a believer, your prayer life, how God wants you to pray, how that uh, he wants to for you to grow through your prayer life. Uh, this is what happens in this passage. Let me just read it to you first. We're going to read the first 13 verses of, of uh, Luke 11. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples, that is John the Baptist. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves also forgive everyone who has, who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he, said, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence or his shamelessness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers, one of you fathers, is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You might wonder, why is he bringing the Holy Spirit in here? Well, that was, the, that was the promise of the Father to give to his people when the Messiah came. And they were going to receive the Spirit not long after this, on the day of Pentecost. And so this was the greatest promise, the greatest gift that God could possibly give his people. So it becomes the great example that the Father gives good gifts and so when we've come to him in prayer, we know that he is willing and able to answer our prayers. But I'd like, to, I'd like you to think of this in terms of uh, how to draw near to the Father in prayer for this reason. In James chapter 4, in fact, I think I'll have you turn there, James, James 4 verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. One of the things about the Christian life that we're all aware of is we want to know how to grow as believers. I had somebody talk to me this past week who doesn't go to our church, and he was questioning me about something he said that really bothered him. He said, I... I've really been considering Christ. I've been reading this book. It was all the words of Christ and what Jesus said about everything. 
And he says, I've been reading this book every day for a long time, and I'm having a real hard time because most of the people that I meet who say they're Christians, they don't seem like Jesus at all. And I'm sure he was including me in that list. Why is that? Well, it's because God has saved us in order that we might enter into a relationship with him and through that relationship grow. We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by our good life. We're saved by faith in Christ and the work of Christ alone. However, God saved us in order to change us. You remember Ephesians 1 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? In order to become holy and blameless before him. In other words, he wants us to experience a life of fellowship with him. And he was willing to send his son in order to accomplish that. He wants you to live a life of fellowship with him. And uh, when James says the, the way that if we draw near to God, he draws near to us, lets us know something. Now, it's interesting. Somebody was telling me this this morning, how God works in our lives, is we have those times in our life when we feel so distant from God. And we just kind of get used to it. It's just the way life is. And we don't want to be one of these fanatics that are always trying to figure out how to be a really good, good Christian. We just want God to be a good, good father. But then what happens is we go through a trial. We go through difficulty. We face some things that we have no control over. And we are compelled to turn to our father and come close to him and to bear our heart to him. And James says, when you draw near to him, he draws near to you. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? I was, um, I was reading, I, got, I sent a quote to a couple of friends of mine. I want to read it to you. It's actually by a secular writer. It has nothing really to do with Christianity. And yet, this is what he said. It's, it's a man who wrote a book called The Experiential Library, Transforming Academic and Research Libraries Through the Power of Experiential Learning. And what, he was, what this guy is talking about is the fact that he has learned that until students experience what they're learning, it won't stick. It won't be life-changing. It won't have a place within their heart and mind. And so this is what he says. This was fascinating. As far as I know, he's not a Christian. He's not writing as a Christian. But he says, up until the 12th century theology, that is doctrine that we find in Scripture, what the Bible says about God, about man, about Christ, about our salvation, about our life with Christ. He said, up until the 12th century, theology was not a matter of knowing, but a matter of praying. Theology was not a doctrine to be analyzed intellectually or discussed in school. The purpose of theology was not to explain God, but to know him in prayer and adoration and praise and thanksgiving. This, this is a secular guy writing this. If theology was a science, he's just talking about history in, in the history of the church. If theology was a science, it had to do with affections. In other words, the more you learn about God, the deeper your affections for him grow. Just like that song we just sang, you're a good, good father, that's who you are. And then he says, and I'm loved by you, and that's who I am. To know that I am loved by God, that's my identity. That I'm loved by God. And when that sinks into the heart, when it touches the affections, it makes a change in our lives. This prayer conception of theology obtained until the first half of the 12th century. And then we turned it into an academic exercise. Now, I like that. Uh, I teach theology at a seminary, and I've been doing it for about 40 years now. And 
Uh, I know it's like to sit in a classroom and give lecture after lecture after lecture and give them information, data after data after data. And tell them, I teach a class called Theology Proper, which is the doctrine of God, about God, the triune God, about who he is, what his nature is, what his attributes are, what his plan is, what the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, and so forth. And I've discovered that it's easy to take a class like that and learn all these facts. I make them actually create a, a, a chart in which they chart all these things about God on it. That's a part of the final exam. People can do that, and they feel no closer to God than when they started. You see, theology is supposed to change our hearts. It's supposed to go all the way down deep into our affections till we have a completely different idea of who God is. And our life with him changes. It becomes more intimate. It becomes something that's so important to us that we couldn't neglect it. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to be prayerless for a long period of time? Don't answer that. I'll just say it from my perspective. It's amazing how easy it is to become prayerless over way too long of a period of time. I talk to my wife every day. I talked to her this morning. I'll talk to her this afternoon. I, I commune with her. We, we talk and we share our hearts together. But it's amazing that we serve a God that we are so close to. We are objects of his love. He gave his son for us. The Bible teaches that God sent his son into the world to rescue us from our alienation from him and from the day of judgment that's coming on this world. And yet we can go days without spending any time with him in conversation with him. Now, of course, we're not listening for voices. We, we have the word of God. We come to the word of God and we read it and sometimes it becomes so obvious to us that God is speaking directly to me. You've experienced that, haven't you? That God puts you in a situation where you're reading the word and all of a sudden you realize this is exactly what God wants to tell me right now in light of my life and my circumstances. Well, the, the disciple has asked Jesus to teach him how to pray, and, and I think we all can say we're really glad that he did that, that, that they did that, because he answers them. And uh, in this passage we just looked at, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What I want to speak to you about based upon this passage is prayer that draws us near to God. What are the characteristics of prayer that draws us near to God? I'm struck by this situation. Uh, this is discipleship. This is what making a disciple is all about. The person who made disciples first was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we want to be involved in making disciples, we need to follow his example. Why did they ask the question? Well, if you read the text carefully, you can see why. It says because he prayed and they heard him pray. And then they said to him, one of the disciples says to him, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. And so Jesus does. Now, we're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer, we call it, uh, back in Matthew 6, which is the same prayer, except it's more extensive than this. I'm sure we could quote it, couldn't we? Uh, from the King James Version. Uh, let's, let's, let's say that together. Our Father, who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who are indebted to us. Oh, give us our, I see, that's good. You know it better than I do. 
give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. And he goes on to explain how important that is. Well, what Jesus was doing was teaching his disciples how to pray. He didn't want them just to repeat this prayer. He wanted them to see the shape of prayer. This is the shape of our prayer. And there's four characteristics of this prayer that draws us near to God I want you to see. It's really obvious in these passages about prayer. And the first thing is that it is worship-centered, not list-centered prayer. Now, it's okay to have a prayer list. But that should not be the center of our praying. I've got 15 things on my list. You think you could take a few minutes with me and pray through these 15 things? That is not the way prayer is supposed to be. Have you noticed something? That both versions of the Lord's Prayer, both here in Luke 11 and Matthew 6, are, begin with worship. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's reverence. The word hallowed means reverenced. May your name be reverenced. I know one guy in the church doesn't like me to use reverence as a verb, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, hallowed be thy name. We want your name to be sanctified, set apart, seen for who it represents. It's worship. So first of all, our, our prayer should be worship-centered prayer. It should be expressing the truth about God. In other words, we should seek his face before we seek his hand. What I mean by that, we should come to worship him before we ask him for anything. You may, never get, you may not even get to your prayer list if you start worshiping him, which wouldn't be bad, because he knows what you need before you ask. But he does want you to acknowledge him and worship him. But what would you say? I find people, like in prayer meetings, we've had this before. We, I used to meet with some group of people. We'd meet on Saturday evenings and we'd pray. And one night I said, okay, first of all, let's just spend some time praising God before we ask him for anything. That was the hardest thing in the world for us to do because we're so used to asking him for things we can't even imagine praying and just praising him. The word praise, you heard it this morning in Psalm 146. The word praise means to is, is a response to who God is and what God is. We praise you because you are holy and righteous and goodness and truth. We praise you because you're an all-knowing God. We praise you because you're the creator of all things. What did, uh, you, some of you know the story of Moses when, I mean of, uh, yes, of Moses in the desert when he walked upon this, this bush that was burning and yet it wasn't being consumed? And all of a sudden he realizes in the presence of God, and God, God instructs him. He says, take your sandals off because you're standing on holy ground. But then in, in that conversation, he sends him back into Egypt to speak to the people of Israel, the, the Jews, his people, about the fact that he's going to deliver them from Egyptian bondage. They were slaves in Egypt. But Moses asks a good question. He says, I'm going to go back and talk to your, the children of Israel, and they're going to ask me, and I'm going to tell them that you sent me to them, and they're going to say, well, what's his name? Who is this God that you're talking about? You remember what God said to him? He said, I am. I am that I am. In fact, that, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew expression of I am that I am is related to the word Yahweh, or we call it Jehovah. He is the God who has life in himself. Now, what that means is, it means that he is self-existent. 
We don't have to supply God with anything. Did you know that? When you become a Christian, you don't have to give God anything in order for him to exist. He doesn't need something from you. He doesn't need air. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need anything like that. He has no needs. And so when he says, I am, he's saying, I am self-existent. And so when you pray, you can tell God, based upon his word, who he is and praise him for that. We praise you that you are a God who has life in himself and that you have shared that life with us. We praise you because you're glorious in all of your ways, that you have created everything, and we look around and we see your creation and we're stunned by it. What a glorious and great and awesome God this is. And so when we start to pray, we lift up our hearts. I'll tell you, let me give you a passage that would be helpful to you in doing this. It's uh, Acts chapter 17. It's uh, the account where Paul is uh, is at uh, Mars Hill, and he's talking to these uh, pagan, unbelieving uh, philosophers, and he notices that they have a, an idol there on Mars Hill that says the unknown God. And so he uses that as a platform to speak to them about God. This is a, this is a passage you can pray. Look at verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, that is this place where they discussed all kinds of things, And he says, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world, get that. You can pray this, this, this verse. You are the God who made the world and all things in it. And Paul said, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you that you are Lord of heaven and earth. There is no territory over which he is not the God and Lord. Not your job, not your neighborhood. I, I just read an article in uh, Voice of Martyrs. Somehow I got on their list and I get this little magazine, free magazine. You ought to get it. You can go online and get it. and It's wonderful. They tell stories in this magazine every month that you get it about how God is working in the lives of people who are under severe persecution. There was one story, and there was so moving. It was about this pastor's wife that the, in Nigeria, the Boko Haram had come in and burned down their village. They're trying to drive all the Christians out of this territory. And um, this woman escaped from the village She had her baby. She had four children, but she only had her baby in her arms. The other three, she didn't know where they were. They were back in the village. And so she's running for her life. And she hides under a rock. And this this militant soldier comes up and he stands up on the rock. She's underneath it. And she said, all I can do is pray, oh God, please keep the baby quiet. And he's up there looking around and looking for people. And she's under the rock. (laughs) And the baby made not a sound. And finally this, this guy walked off. And so she got out from under the rock, went back to the village, and got into the village, hid, and found out that her husband had been killed and been shot. And so she got his body, and she drug his body into the, this piece of property where the church was, a compound. She took him in there. She dug a hole and buried her husband. 
And then she found her children. I read that story and I wept because it shamed me. It's amazing how we can, we can beat our chest and think, man, life is tough, isn't it? Especially people in the ministry. <laughs> read this. You think life is hard? Read this. To lay down your life for Christ. And it sobered me up. In fact, what I thought of was 1 Thessalonians 1, where, verse 5, where Paul says to the Thessalonians, you remember that the gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much full conviction. And you know what he's talking about? He's talking about what God did to him as he preached the gospel. He said, when I brought the gospel to you, it was in power and the Holy Spirit with much conviction. We had deep, profound conviction of the truth of the gospel. And then he says, just as you know what sort of men we became while we were with you for your sakes. And it struck me that what he's saying there, I always think, you know, I want to preach so you can be transformed. And, and Paul says, I preached and I was transformed. And they could see it. They could see that his life was being changed by what he was preaching. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's a whole new theme for me. I, when I get with these young guys who want to be pastors, this is what I'm going to tell them. What you need to pray for is that God would work in your life in this way. As you preach the Bible, it would change you. It will change you. And then he may even change some of the people you preach to. Especially if they see, if they see this, if they see power and conviction and the spirit of God bearing you along and preaching the gospel, it may absolutely transform them. So the first thing we need to do in prayer to draw close to God is we, it needs to be gospel. It needs to be worship-centered, not list-centered. Please, I'm not criticizing you having a prayer list. That's fine. But I've been in prayer meetings many times when over half the time was taken for us to write down things to pray for. Have you ever been in one of those? And pretty soon you're so depressed about Aunt Susie and Uncle Joe and everybody else that is so sick and on the verge of you know, dying that you don't have time to worship God. Why not start off just worshiping him? Just extolling him. You know, Jesus, when he made disciples, he realized that they needed to learn how to pray by hearing him pray. Do you know that people that you disciple need to learn how to pray by hearing you pray? I confessed to my wife a sin in my life yesterday, and it's what it is, is that I was getting, I was, this was, had become a habit with me. I would sit down to eat, and I'd start eating before I would even take time to give thanks. And I knew what it was. It was cold-heartedness. It was the fact that I wasn't even thinking about the fact that God is the one who provides everything that I have. This self-existent God who doesn't need anything is the one who meets all my needs. And she said, I noticed that. (laughs) And so we agreed for the next month, she's going to pray when we sit down to have a meal together. And I'll learn how to pray. But imagine you, you're a disciple maker. You may, not, you may not even think of that, but it's what the Bible says. This is our mission as the people of God. We, we are given the mission of making disciples of, for Jesus Christ. That's Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. Therefore, because of that, because I have all authority, I'm sending you into the whole world. There's no part of this world that you can't go with the gospel. 
and make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, he's put you in a place, and there are people all around you who need to hear the gospel, and he wants you to share the gospel with them. And when they come to faith in Christ, he wants you to stick with them and show them how to walk with Christ. A lot of Christians don't have any idea. If you were to ask them, hey, tell me how to walk with Christ, they wouldn't know what to say. Now, if you ask Peter and John and James, what does it mean to follow Christ? They would have said, well, we just stay as close to him as we can. You know, when he goes up the hill, we go up the hill with him. When he goes down to the lake, we go down to the lake with him. But you can't see Jesus with your physical eyes, can you? So how do you follow him? You follow him through his word. You read his word, you hear his words, you hear his will, and you respond in obedience to his will. This is what I've I've said this, and my wife's told me to stop saying this, but... I've told you about it when I came to understand that Jesus had commanded me to love my wife like my own body. And it had a completely different spin on it for me. And I began obeying that. And I found such joy just in obeying Christ. And you know, all of his commands are to you personally. What I mean by that, all the commands that he gives to the people of God are for all the people of God. And he wants us to obey. Sometimes we're not even aware that we're living in continual disobedience to Christ. I told you about one of my students who, uh, he's a pastor of a friend's church, and he, uh, he started a ministry on forgiveness, and this is what motivated it. He told me, he says, I never realized that I was unforgiving towards my wife. But what happened was I began noticing as I was driving around by myself that I was saying all these mean things to her. Because that was the only place I had the guts to say mean things to her is when she wasn't there. And he said, I realized I wasn't forgiving. I was unforgiving about everything. And so he repented of that, and he actually began a ministry. He's been all over the world teaching this course on forgiveness because he was so impacted by this truth. There's a lot of times we're, we're living in continual disobedience to Christ. We wonder, why is the Christian life so boring? Maybe it's because... You're so inattentive to the will of Christ. He's called us to come together to worship. This is why we have these meetings. It isn't so that somebody gets to preach. It's so that we can worship him, so that we can extol him, so we can praise him together as the people of God. So we can hear people next to us saying his name and singing praises to him. So we can join in together in praising Christ And we begin to realize what an important part he is in our life. And so if you don't know what to pray, if you don't know how to worship him, just take this passage like Acts 17 that I just mentioned and go through that text and just use those words as your words of praise to God. He's the God who created everything. He is the God who has everything in his control. He's the God who who he is so that we don't have to live in fear and anxiety. So first of all, uh, our our prayer should be worship-centered, not list-centered, in order for our prayer to draw us close to him, to draw us near to him. Secondly, it has to be in community, not in isolation. This is something that's hit me right between the eyes because you see it everywhere. Jesus said in Matthew 18, again I say to you that if two of you on earth, if two of you agree on earth about anything 
that they may ask. It is in prayer. It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. We're supposed to be praying together. In fact, you've noticed, I've mentioned this before. By the way, that doesn't mean I forgot I mentioned it. I'm mentioning it again because I want you to get it. It's this. It's when Jesus told his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. You notice all the plural pronouns? He told them this is what you say. Our Father. What does that mean? It means it's us. It's not just me. I don't say my Father in heaven. I say our Father in heaven because I'm praying with the saints. Now, it doesn't mean you never pray by yourself, but I got to tell you, most of your praying should be done with other believers. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 that the way we live in the last days, first of all, is that we have to pray together. He says, be sober and alert for the purpose of prayers, plural. And that expression, prayers, always refers to getting believers together praying. And that's the hardest assignment, isn't it? That's the hardest assignment. I know I can tell looking at your faces. It's like, you expect me to pray in front of other people? Yes. Yes. And all you got to do is get desensitized to it. Just pray together. Get together and pray. Uh, I got to say, I got to compliment Mitch Peterson and their family. I've known them for 40 years, and they pray and their family together. I'm assuming you still do. If you feel guilty, you can tell me later. <laughs> but I always love being around them because they would pray together. And this is what we, we must do. We must pray together. It has to be in community. We pray in community. These are all uh, plural pronouns. And, this, and Jesus said, when two or three together and pray, whatever they agree upon. Now, let me tell you, this is difficult. Have you ever had a hard time getting another believer to agree with you about what you should be praying about? It's, sometimes it's hard. <laughs> but if two of you agree on, on anything on the earth and you ask in my name, it will be done for you. Now, you can do with that whatever you want. That's what the text says. Because where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in their midst. And when Peter writes, he says, the end of all things is drawn near, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of meeting together and praying. I had a, a, one of my uncles, J.C. Stevens, James Cully Stevens, and he, I used to, his boys were my age, and um, so, or one of the boys was my age, and, and uh, I'd go spend the night with him, and this is what he would do at the dinner table every single night. Everybody would get on their knees at their chair, <laughs> and they would pray as a family. And they would come, he would, he would lead, but they would come before the Lord and ask him to meet their needs, to accomplish his purposes in their life. That's a good thing. And we are to pray in community. After all, if you are around believers who have come to know Jesus Christ, they have the Holy Spirit living in them, we're told in Romans 8, verses 9 and 10, and we can pray in the Spirit together. We can pray for one another. We can lift up our voices in praise and adoration. A lot of us are not, we're, we're, we're so unacquainted with that. We've never been around believers who praise God uh, in prayer when we, when we pray, for someone just to extol God and begin to, begin to speak to him in front of everybody else about how glorious he is and how good he is to us. But that's the common practice of the church of Jesus Christ. 
I've been in a few places around the world, and I can tell you that's how people pray in other parts of the world. They praise God together, and they're not timid about it. We don't have to be timid. He's glorious, and we can praise him. And then the third thing is, is we are to pray in the spirit, not in the flesh. In the flesh, just meaning my own effort, my own thought, my own way. In the spirit is I pray in dependence upon and in the direction that the spirit gives me through the word. How am I supposed to pray? So I submit to the spirits leading me to pray. For example, the Bible tells me that the normal pattern of prayer is I address the Father in the name of Jesus because Jesus has reconciled me to the Father. The reason I can speak his name is because of what Jesus has done for me. And so we, we come in the power of the Spirit to pray. I read back in, in the beginning in verse 13 of Luke 11, it says, how much more will your heavenly Father give us the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now you gotta remember, this is before the Spirit had been poured out. Up to this time, he's been called the promise of the Father. The Father has promised the Spirit. He doesn't, he isn't poured out until the day of Pentecost. And you know why, don't you? Because that's when Jesus had gone back to the Father. And he said, when I go back to the Father, I'm going to pour out my Spirit upon you. Well, we have, none of us have, none of us are that old. None of us was living during, at the first Pentecost. That was a long time ago, 2,000 years. But when we got saved, Romans 8, verses 9 and 10 says we receive the Holy Spirit. So we can pray in the Spirit. We can pray under the influence and in the direction of and in the authority of the Holy Spirit of God. We can address the Almighty God in the name of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians six eighteen says, With all power and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints in the Spirit. That is being directed and empowered by the Spirit. One of the things this um, Voice of the Martyrs magazine does, they send you out maps. I just got it. It was a map in this magazine. And it's a map of the persecuted Christians around the world. And it gives you some, uh, a, a guide to pray for people around the world who are going through. You know, it's good to pray for people who are undergoing severe persecution. It's sobering to us. It's sobering to us. And it makes us realize, you know, sitting on those lousy chairs you sit on every week isn't the greatest trial in the world. Nobody's shooting at you yet. And so when we, we think about believers around the world that we can pray for in the Spirit, that the Spirit will direct us to pray for them. And then the fourth thing is we pray with shamelessness. If you notice down in the text, in verse 8, he says, because of your perseverance, your neighbor, even not, he's not doing it because he's your friend, because of your perseverance. Well, the word perseverance there is the word, um, or persistence, rather, is the word shamelessness. It means... The guy goes to his neighbor and his neighbor says, I don't want to be bothered. I'm in bed and my children are asleep. If I get up, I'm going to wake them all up. And you know what that's going to be like. I'm not going to come and open the door for you. But the guy keep asking, please, please, I have friends who've come and I have to have food for them. That was, that was the normal custom of the day. If people came to visit you, you provided food for them. This was important to him, so he continues to ask. But what he's doing, he's comparing the lesser to the greater. If you can get somebody who doesn't even care, wants you to leave them alone, if you can get them to respond to your requests, imagine what it's like to talk to a father who is prejudiced towards you. 
You are his child. He cares about you. He wants to meet your needs. And you're saying, well, why doesn't he answer all my prayers? Because some of your prayers are stupid. (laughs) Some of our prayers are really dumb, aren't they? The things that we ask for. I can remember when I was a teenager, I prayed for a Corvette. And he never gave it to me. And I'm so glad that God, (laughs) I'm so glad that God is more mature than me. And so we, we come to him and uh, we ask him shamelessly in the sense that though the shamelessness meant the fact that the guy says, I'm not going to worry about what he wants. I'm going to continue until he's willing to give it to me. Well, we don't, we don't hound God. We don't just keep on pounding away. But the idea is I can come with great confidence to the living God because I know he's prejudiced towards me. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean that the Bible tells me how he feels about me. We sing that little song. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that he loves you and that he has good for you. He's a good, good father. The word good is actually a theological term for one of the attributes of God. God is good. And what it means is God is happy and he, he has wholeness on the inside. So he freely gives. You remember when um, uh, Gloria Gaither wrote that song, I am loved, I am loved, I can risk loving you. Well, what the deal is, is that because God is good and everything that comes from him is good, so that he is free to freely give because he's not trying to prove anything to you. He's not trying to be accepted by you. He treats you good because of his love for you. He answers your prayers because of his love for you. Who is this God that we serve? We sing these songs, they're amazing words. I don't know if you notice uh, that, that one song, Living He Loved Me, uh, what's the name of that song? Glorious Day. The guy that wrote that song, wrote that song so that he could sing the gospel. He was an evangelist who preached at churches, and he wrote that song so that they could sing the gospel. Living He Loved Me, Dying He, he Saved Me, Buried He Carried My Sins Far Away. That's a very wonderful way to express it, what Jesus has done for us. So if you, in your prayer life, I want your prayer life to draw you close to God. I want it to to transform you, to make you a believer who lives in the presence of Jesus Christ. You know, in the book of Hebrews, it says, we live in the new covenant, and it says, because we live in the new covenant, we have confidence. Paresia means uh, I'm confident to enter right into the presence of God. I'm confident to bring this need before God. And it also says that we can draw near him. We can actually come as close as we want to the living God. And so when we pray to him, we come to him in worship, first of all. We seek his face. We realize, you know what, it's a lot more important to me to talk about how glorious he is than to talk about how needy I am. And I think that's why the Bible says he knows your need before you ask. You don't have to worry. You know, I had 10 things to pray for and I only got through eight of them. Well, guess what? He knows what they are. And so we come to him in worship and adoration because he's the God who can meet the needs of people that we love and our needs. He's able to do that. And so Jesus makes it clear that the Holy Spirit was a gift to everyone who trusted Christ in John 7. You know that passage. In John 7, it was during the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus on the day that they didn't carry the water, it was, a, it was part of the, the celebration of the Day of Tabernacles. They, the priest would go and get water out of the Pool of Siloam and carry it in this golden pitcher into the 
to the temple and they would pour it out next to the altar and it was a commemoration that God gave him water when they traveled for 40 years in the wilderness and they were giving him thanks. So Jesus, who was the rock that followed them, we're told in 1 Corinthians, means that he was the one who supplied the water for them. He was sitting there, right there in the midst of them as they celebrated this. And it says in John 7 that he lifted up his voice and he called out and he said, Is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. And it flows out of you. It doesn't just stick in there. Isn't it wonderful that it flows out of you and touches other people's lives? And then, he, and then John explains what he was talking about. I get a big kick out of this because this was 60 years after the event and John still remembers and he knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. He says, he spoke this of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the river. So who has the river in them? Rivers of living water. Every believer. You have rivers of living water. But there may be something that's obstructing the flow of this river of life so that it doesn't affect other people around you. Maybe you keep your mouth shut too much. Maybe you forget how to even tell people how he has enriched your life, how he has supplied all of your deepest needs in life. And so when we we pray, we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we can pray. That's why he was given to us so he could empower us to pray. Remember in Romans 8, 26, I think it is, it says, we didn't, the Spirit helps our weakness. The Spirit helps our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we ought. Anybody have that problem? Yeah, we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so he says, the Spirit helps our weakness. What does he do? It says, he intercedes for us. He addresses Christ And he intercedes for us with groanings to be for words. And the one who searches the hearts, I believe that's Jesus, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes to God. So here you have the Trinity. The Spirit is interceding for you. The Son is hearing those intercessions and communicating to the Father. And then verse 28, the very next verse after that, those first two verses. You know what Romans 8, 28 says? What? No, it doesn't say all things work together. It says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why? Because the entire Trinity is engaged in this work. The Spirit is interceding for you. The Son is communicating that to the Father. And the Father is causing all the things in your life. You know that bad stuff that's going on right now? You know those horrible trials you're going through? Those are a part of God's working plan of putting those things together in such a way that it will cause to work to your good. What's the good? In the context, the good is you being conformed to the image of Christ. Being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, sometimes it's painful. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes there's pain involved. You know, God uses things in your life that you wish he wouldn't use. You want him to get rid of those things. Banish them from my life. He says, no, this is exactly what you need. This is what he did with Elijah. Remember Elijah when he was running from Jezebel? And he's, a, he's running for his life and he ends up under a broom tree. And he's laying there and he just wants to die. So an angel shows up. Because he's praying, God, just let me die. Just let me die. I just want to die. Please, let me die. 
an angel shows up and says, relax. Take a drink of this, eat a little of this, and take a nap. And then when he wakes up, he sends him up to a cave on Mount Sinai. He goes up there, and you remember what happened. The wind blew, the earth shook. What else? What's the other thing? There's three things. (laughs) The earthquake. And he says he wasn't in that. This wasn't God speaking to him. And then what happened? It said a, a, a gentle blowing, a gentle voice, and it was God speaking to him. And he says, I have an agenda for your life. And it doesn't include in, uh, killing you right now. It includes using you to the very end of your life. And so he sends him on a, on a mission. That's how God is. God has you in his hand. And what he wants from you more than anything else is for you to acknowledge that you are loved by God. And he has a plan for your life. And he wants you to seek his face. He wants you to come to him in prayer and seek his face before you seek his hand and his goods, the stuff he needs to do for you. You need to worship him more than you ask him. Some of you have heard, somebody told me they were praying, somebody told them about the acts, A-C-T-S uh, method of prayer. That's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and Supplication. Supplication means asking what you, the need that you feel in your heart, asking God to meet that need. But do you see the order of it? You start with adoration. That's worship. We start with adoration. I think everybody should know that. That's what the Bible teaches. We come to the Father, we worship him. We adore him. We actually tell him what we've learned in the word about him. He's a self-existent God. He's a good God. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. And we extol him. And it's okay to ask for something, but first worship him. That's the most important thing. You may get so involved in worship, you forget to ask for anything. And then he answers your request that you never even brought him. You forgot because he knows what you need before you ask. That's the kind of God he is. So let me pray, but I want to, your assignment this week is to draw near to God in prayer. That's your assignment, and I'll ask you next week, did you do that? Did you draw near to God in prayer? So let's pray. Our Father, we do extol you. We praise your name because of how great and glorious you are. We praise you, Father, because you have love like we have never known before. And you have shown your love to us in such a real and concrete way. You sent your own son into the world to rescue us from our destruction, our alienation from you, and our horrible future under the judgment of God. But because of your love, and you keep on commending your love by reminding of this, is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We extol your name. You are a glorious God. We want to live our lives to praise you. We want to live our lives in a way that people would know the truth about you rather than blaspheme you. We want to live, Father, in total and complete dependence upon you. We want to live with joy because you said if we're loving and believing Christ, our hearts would be filled with inexplicable joy. So we pray, I pray for us as your people, Father, that this week we would draw near you in prayer. We would pray as worship. 
We would pray in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We would pray together with each other. I pray, Father, making a, make us a church that it really is a house of prayer, that people gather together, they join together in prayer. They take needs and, and they offer up praise and worship to you together as the people of God. We love you and we want you to be glorified in our lives. We want you to bring about growth and maturity in our lives that we might serve you in a way that would not only please you, but Father would advance and spread your reputation. You are the God of all grace and we praise and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.